She's on the front lines to bringing justice to an unjust world. The devil is alive. Here's your host, Angel Nicole. The devil is alive. A lot of people know the name Ben Crump but it's his co-counsel that helps him bring justice to civil rights cases across America. It took him 16 minutes to say that his client's not guilty. And, you know, as a former prosecutor and a defense attorney, I can tell you one of the few first things I say as a defense attorney is that my client's not guilty because that's the mindset that you want the jury in when they're listening to what you're saying. That was a voice of today's guest, Sue Ann Robinson. She's a council member of Ben Crump's team, but she is also the owner of her own firm, Frontline Law. At age 23, she started her career as a prosecutor, and today she's still serving our communities by seeking equality and justice for all. You may have seen her on court TV or on the hit star show, Wrong Man. Now, this is my friend, and I am super excited to introduce to some and reintroduce to others the brilliant, beautiful, and bold Sue Ann Robinson. Hey, girl. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I'll pay you later for that intro. Thank you, friend. How have you been? I'm good. Just working, 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 working super hard and, you know, trying to do that work-life balance thing with everything that's going on, so. Now, when you say with everything going on, talk to us a little bit, what's been going on in your civil rights world? You know, during the height of COVID was when all of the protests were going on with respect to George Floyd's murder. And towards the tail end earlier um, this year is when Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd, went on trial. It's a very, um, you know, it's a touch point for our community because it really set off a lot of the protests that happened during the height of COVID. And so it's, you know, obviously it's a high profile case. There's a lot that comes with that, even though this was the criminal prosecution, um, you know, just a lot of media attention, a lot of support needed for the families. And then, of course, the actual trial itself, attending the trial and supporting the families um, throughout that. But we make it work. We're there. We have an amazing team, obviously. I'm fortunate and honored to be a part of the Ben Crump Law team. And, you know, we make it work. We do it. Our, our clients are, are very well supported. And especially um, with respect to that case, it was very, it was different because we were in COVID. And because of all the protests, the city was actually on lockdown. And then the whole courthouse was on lockdown with military personnel. So the only people that were in the courthouse was us, you know, the families, the legal team, then the jury and then judges and their staff. So I've never been in a trial where the entire courthouse is empty, but for that particular case. So that was uh, very unique, very different. Let me ask you this, because I feel like, you know, as being a part of the jury, you're not supposed to have outside weigh in and outside influence from the media and all of that. Do you know how they were able to keep um, the jurors kind of like away from that? Or was that not even an option because of COVID? Yeah, the jurors are sequestered. There's two types of sequestration. There's sequestration by order where the judge says, okay, guys, listen, you're 
been sworn in as a panel, don't watch TV, don't go online, don't go on Facebook, don't go on Twitter, don't go on IG. Just go home and don't do any of those things. Right. Talk to, you know, talk to yourself and talk to the Lord. Go to bed. <laughs> and then there's another type of sequestration where they're actually like, you know, all in a, one hotel or one place, accom- you know, accommodations and they're not allowed to leave. So that jury wasn't physically um, sequestered, but they were ordered sequestration every night. So they weren't permitted to read newspapers or anything like that. Interesting. Like, cause that's something I just didn't know. And I just thought about it. I was like, huh, how did they maintain this? Like without that outside influence. So when you first entered the judicial system, why did you want to become a lawyer? Well, I wanted to be a lawyer because of Claire Huxtable. I wanted to be a prosecutor. <laughs> Good old Claire. Yes. Shout out to representation matters. I'm a 80s baby. I'm a 90s kid. I was like, Claire, I was yes. Like, dress, taking care of her family, handling her business, and dressing up on Saturdays and going to the office like flawless. I was like, I can. This that. is what we do. I can do that. But I definitely became a prosecutor because I recognize that, you know, in the criminal justice system, it's important to have because our people are being so affected by criminal justice every day that we need representation on both sides. A lot of people go to the PD's office, which is a great office, or become criminal defense attorneys right after graduating law school. But I think what makes me so effective as a defense attorney is that I wasn't in the prosecutor's office. So I understand their process. I understand what they do, what resources they have, how it works. And then honestly, I just have a relationship with the prosecutor's office as well. So that helps me to better defend my clients. And when I was there, which I know Laura Coates actually has a book about this out now, about her experience being a black female prosecutor. But a lot of times there would just be situations where, you know, I would understand what's going on, even though it's the defendant's family, you know, even when I had trials and things, uh, prosecuting people for pretty tough crimes because I was in felony trial unit, um, you know, I would never be disrespectful to a defendant's family or even to a defendant. I would always say, you know, we're here to try a case. We're here to judge the facts, not necessarily judge this person. And um, I always had, you know, if the person was African-American the and the family was present, they would thank me, um, you know, for respecting them and respecting uh their loved one, even in that process, even in that setting, because a lot of times it's not like black lady sketch. So where the judge is black and the clerk is black, it's probably just me and just the defendant, you know, the only black people in the room. So a lot of times they will look to me (laughs) to say, is this fine? Or what do we do next? And, and, um, you know, to, to just understand the dynamic of that and the responsibility of that um, you know, using your discretion appropriately, uh, you know, w- was a big responsibility, but I welcomed it and I learned a lot and it helps me to be a better defender. How does that make you feel though? Like knowing that in most cases, or even the first time that it happened when you walked in and it's just like, oh dang, like don't nobody else in here look like me. Mm-hmm. Like how, how was that? Um, it, 
I guess in a way you get used to it because I, I went to a PWI law school. So, you know, the classes that I took, sometimes I'd be the only black person, um, you know, so you kind of understand that, you know, black attorneys are only 5% of all the attorneys in the country, just 5%. And so with the number that low, a lot of times you don't expect to see other black attorneys and you don't. And so that is what gives you that responsibility when you are in the courtroom in terms of how you conduct yourself, being overprepared and just making sure you know exactly what's going on. You have a handle on everything because you are a lot of times the, the only black person and a lot of times the only black woman for sure. So, um, you know, it can be daunting. Obviously, the first time um, it's always going to be a little challenging. But I, I was very fortunate early on in my career to have amazing um clerks in, in the courtrooms that I worked in, older black women that were like, baby, come here, your hair messed up, or, you know, you, your jacket got something on it, or you still got your tag on your skirt, or whatever was going on, you know, they would mother me, you know, in the courtroom to kind of help with any nerves or anything like that, and, you know, sometimes give pep talks, like, girl, you got it today, it's fine, or the judge gets a little angsty on you, you're not ready for that, they're like, okay, it's okay, girl, it's fine, just you doing good? Yes. So I really appreciated, you know, even though I didn't have always have other um, African-American female colleagues, you know, a lot of times the clerks and things like that were African-American women, very, very supportive and, and just awesome. Earlier, you mentioned representation and how it matters. What representation do we have today for the next generation of young Black women, young Black girls to be able to see this is possible? I mean, I feel like it, on TV. Yeah, just across the board. Um, You know, we there's people, there's me, there's Ben, obviously. She said, there's me. <laughs> we, we out here. Um, you know, there's Olivia Pope if you want to do like TV people. Um, I think it's a lot different for this generation that would go to law school because of social media, because they have direct access to us. Like in, I don't want to say in my day, make myself sound old, but you know, we, we had Claire Huxtable and then your parents had to know a lawyer or someone around you, which I, fortunately I did have family members that practice law, but, um, you know, you had to know someone or be introduced to a lawyer. Whereas now they can go online, they can find who, me, whoever, you know, type in hashtag civil rights lawyer, boom, and find, you know, uh, a mentor or mentee or join, you know, National Bar Association as a student, you know, to, to have those type of opportunities. So I think it's a little better in terms of access to, to Black lawyers that serve as an example and then obviously with all the civil rights um, cases that are happening, which um, now they see us, they see us on TV or they see the cases that are being worked on and they can be inspired by the work. Even if they don't see us, they can be inspired by the cases and what's happening and, you know, want to be a part, you know, want to be a social engineer and effectuate change based on what's happening, which is great. Let's talk about cases. What has been your hardest case that you've ever had to work on and why was it so hard? I had a homicide trial 
as as a prosecutor, and that was a very hard case. The defendant was um, an African American male, a younger African American male, and um, it was a tough case because a lot of the facts surrounding the case were things that had to do with his socioeconomic status, and so. My co-counsels on the case were white males who didn't understand a lot of the facts of the case. So I'll just give you an example quickly to make a long story short, because lawyers can make short stories long. Um, (laughs) Bendit and his friends and things spent a lot of time outside because they lived in government housing, which these particular places that they lived were super small and they had many relatives living in the same place. And so they spent a lot mm-hmm. of time outside, which I understood that. It's like if you live in a small place and, you know, you live with grandma and auntie, your mom and your cousins and everybody lives there, you're going to hang out outside. And so they kept saying, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, these guys must be really bad because they're outside 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I understood why they were outside because it's like if they're not asleep, right. they can't get a spot in front of the TV because, you know, they live with seven other people. They're going to hang out outside. It didn't necessarily mean that they were bad. It was just that was their environment that they grew up in and that they lived in. It wasn't unusual for for older people to be outside at that time just because of their living situation. And so I had to explain that, that it wasn't something that made everybody in the neighborhood bad, but it was based on exactly what I just explained. And um, right, like, their social economic status. Right. And they were like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> so it was like, if I was- So how does that impact? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So how does that impact like when your lawyers and your, you know, the people who are representing you don't really understand those- nuances, social class issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it it absolutely has an effect. And I just think in our community, you know, a lot of times we've been socialized to like white is right. And I need to get this white Jewish lawyer, which I think, uh, you know, any good lawyer is good. It doesn't matter what they look like. If you can be empathetic and you're analytical, you can be a good lawyer. But I think there's like a disconnect there where you know, we don't understand that exact thing I've just explained to you. I've had cases where I've, I've been a prosecutor and a defendant. I remember she she couldn't read the plea form to say, you know, guilty mm-hmm. so she could get sent home. So she started having a fit in the courtroom because she didn't want to say, I can't read the form. So the judge is like, all you have to do is sign this form, read it, and you can go home. And she was like, F you, F this place, forget this, da, 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 and like throwing things and just being crazy and had to be, you know, physically restrained because she was going crazy. And I was like, saying right. to the PD, you need to ask her if she can read. Because she's only getting upset when and the judge talks about this piece of paper. Otherwise, she was cold. <laughs> so you need to ask her if she can read. And that's what it was. She can right. read. But it was because I was observing her and saying, you know, she seemed cool. She doesn't seem, you know, like a aggressive person. But she was embarrassed to say mm-hmm. in front of all these white people in yeah. court, you know, that she couldn't read. But that's why, wow. I, you know, I went to that office with the specific intention 
of being that those eyes and ears, you know, for us, but on the other side. The devil is a lie. You're tuned into The Devil is a Lie, the podcast that speaks to overcoming adversity. Our guest today is Suman Robinson, prosecutor and civil rights attorney. Now, Suan, <laughs> this show, The Devil is a Lie, is all about kind of speaking to that voice inside of you that can sometimes weigh itself in and say, you're not good enough. What were you thinking? What makes you think that you can do this? Now, I know that I've had this many of times, many a day, sometimes multiple times a day. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. But what I would like to know is if there was a time that you've encountered this, and if so, what was the situation? How did you come out of it? And then what was waiting for you on the other side? Okay, my devil is alive moment or time, which which (laughs) you stated it could happen multiple (laughs) times in a day. But a notable time I def- that I remember is when um, I first kind of started, you know, working in media and being a legal analyst. And I remember I had a lawyer that said to me, you know, don't quit your day job, which I haven't. Um, but just you're not going to go very far because, you know, that's just how it is going to be for you. Like, you're not going to go very far. So you can do like your little hits or whatever, (laughs) but you're not going to go very far. Um, You're going to have to wear your hair very short because that's more how they want to see black women in media. You know, like the whole Barbie doll thing is more reserved for, for white legal analysts. And it was just a very weird conversation to have with anyone really, but particularly a colleague. Um, It was like, Oh, okay. And I remember after that, I I did like some more hits for Fox and I was doing, you know, um, legal analysis, but I was very, um, you know, I was timid and I was worried about liking it too much because I was like, oh, well, if this is the ceiling, I don't want to super get into this and then this be my ceiling. And then I remember um, going to a station in in Miami and doing, you know, legal analysts and analysis and the station owner asking me if I would be the anchor, you know, for their morning show because they had their main person just leave. And, um, and I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, you read really well. You're great on camera. And would you like to do this? And I was like, well, you know, I didn't like go to school for like journalism. Like I'm a lawyer and I'm going to have my whole firm and everything I have to do. And they were like, it's cool. We will work around your schedule. We'll make it work. And so for a year, I anchored a morning show um, in, in, in Dade and ran my practice. So we started four in the morning and ended by like 7 a.m., And then I would go to the office or go to court and do whatever I had to do. And during that same time, I got the opportunity to work with Joe Berlinger from Stars to do um, The Wrong Man. And we did it for two seasons. So I say all that to say (laughs) this was after this person told me, like, yeah, you're not going to go very far. And, um, you know, I I felt like I went pretty far and I'm going (laughs) pretty far with it. 
I think sometimes, you know, the devil is a lie, obviously, but he comes along to kind of test, you know, your faith and see, like, do you really believe in yourself? Do you, are you really believing in your affirmations? Are you really having the faith, um, you know, in, in your abilities and yourself and what your vision is and what you want to do? And so, you know, I, I think that the fact that those opportunities came along after that conversation kind of gave me the confidence to be like, that was a lie. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> now, how do you put in the work then? <clears throat> because what you just said, outside of what somebody else put in your head, mm-hmm. I think you, you, you mentioned how to a certain degree it impacted you. Absolutely. It was a reminder that, hey, I don't want to I don't want to like this too much because this person has already kind of told me I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Right. But then you were able to show and prove that you were beyond good enough. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you got the opportunity, you're going to work at four o'clock in the morning, running your practice from 10 on. What does it take to be successful? What does it take? to persevere through and to overcome those adverse moments? I definitely think, you know, having a strong faith is important, but not, I don't want to be like super esoteric. I think it's just important for you to keep going forward, not backwards. You know, even when I had that conversation and it was affecting me in terms of my um, commentary and how I was behaving, I was still doing my hit. Like I was still showing up, like I was still going to TV stations. I was flying to New York. I was going to LA. I was still, you know, I was like, I'm gonna still do it. I'm gonna still see how it goes. I'm gonna see what, what the plan is for me because I have, you know, a passion to um, communicate with our community and demystify this legal stuff and say, Hey, we can understand it too. Um, we can, we can understand it in our own language. And so I had a passion for that. I was like, I'm going to keep going. So I think you have to, in spite of how you may feel on a particular day, be able to just keep pushing through that feeling and um, keep going. Even if you have negative thoughts um, or get negative feedback, I think if you keep putting one foot in front of the other and doing whatever it is that you feel so passionate and so strongly about, you'll come out on the other side. Now, what about support? Mm-hmm. Because I believe support is huge, Critical. right? But I also believe, especially Black women, I think we oftentimes lack support. We oftentimes lack um, the support that we feel as though we deserve, right? From the people that we feel we should be receiving that support from. Mm-hmm. So you said that support is critical. How do you um, garner the support that you deserve if you feel like you're not receiving it from those you would expect it from? I think it's two things that we don't do as Black women because we're socialized to help everyone and make sure everyone is okay. So we don't ask for help. I, I mean, I can speak for myself. I know I spent a lot of years in my career just figuring things out or looking at what other people were doing and trying to see if I could reverse engineer what was going on instead of being like, hey, um, can you bring me this or t- tell me which, who you called or what right. was going on with that? I need that. Whereas I think other, our counterparts are very much is going to ask you, hey, 
where you get your hair from? Mm-hmm. You know and expect it. You know, where you get this from? Where, what's <laughs> How do you get on TV? What did you do? You know, whatever. We're not going to do that. And so I think that's right. a big part of it, asking, you know, over time. Do you think that's pride? I don't know. Do you think it's pride that Black women have? Or is it just, we're just conditioned to, like, figure it out? We're conditioned to, that we already have all the answers. And so it's almost like, if you don't know, it's like, oh, is something wrong with me? You know, like, even the whole Black girl magic thing, which, you know, I'm obsessed with and love and strongly believe in, perpetuates, like, we're magical. We can just make it happen. It doesn't just the if right go deeper to see like black girl magic has to do with you having support from your friends, from your family, from you know your cheerleaders and stuff like that, mentors, mentees, being connected to certain individuals to kind of make things make that magic happen, right? It's not just mm-hmm. you know <laughs> one person sitting there and just, it doesn't just appear. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you know, I think, and it's almost like maybe it's maybe it's like how the lady in the courtroom felt exposed mm-hmm. because she couldn't read. Yes, maybe it's almost like that for us. Like us asking for help exposes that we don't have all the answers. Yes, 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 yes. And I think it actually, you know, what I've found is. And, and I'm not saying I'm like perfect with asking for help because um, I'm not. But when I, I'm not, I found like a lot of times people are like, oh, girl, you should come on out. Like, it's almost like a bonding thing because people see your vulnerability and they don't exploit it. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm happy mm-hmm. to help. And so I feel like as black women, you know, that's why I have so many mentees and I try. So and I always talk to my mentees about this specific thing. I'm like, girl, if you need something please ask me because I may not see that you need something or want something or don't understand something. So ask me, please, because I, I definitely feel like I would have been further earlier on had I been more, you know, open to just saying open. Absolutely. All right. So I know you have to get to another meeting, so we're going to get ready to close out. But before we do, I want to find out, what's coming up on the horizon for Sue and like, what, what are you working on? What are your projects? How can we support you? Um, well, I've rebranded my firm um, to frontline law. We moved to a new office space and we're just doing a lot of, you know, new innovative things. We're trying to kind of just really give um, our clients and our cases you know, the same attention and the same individualized and um, feel that they've always had, but just in a, with a different brand. And um, I'm doing, obviously, all my uh, TV and media appearances, and I'm actually working on um, a wrongful conviction case that's pretty big right now um, that I can't talk about yet, but it's it's a pretty big case. It's just, you know, 4,000 plus uh, pages of reading and preparation to do. So we're hoping to uh, be able to reveal everything behind the case and um, soon to everyone. And then, you know, just doing the most important work of our time, which is um, in my mind, you know, civil rights work and working towards equality and um, justice for all. 
I love it. Now, Suman, how can people stay in contact with you, connect with your law firm, follow you on social media? What's the plug? You, it's at not just a lawyer on all social media platforms um, in the firm. Because she is not just a lawyer. Right. Not just a lawyer. I'm a mom. <laughs> I'm a media personality. Sometimes I'm, I'm an angry lawyer, but mostly I do things with honey, unless you make me use vinegar. But, uh, you know, a black woman just, you know, um, doing it and super, super supportive of people who want to become civil rights lawyers. I'm always recruiting. So everybody's talking about Kim Kardashian now. I'm like, welcome to the fold, friend. Come on. It's a lot of work. We need hands on deck. Come on. Come on. But I'm not just a lawyer. (laughs) Let's go. For sure. Easiest way to find me. So you mentioned Kim. So I have a question. What's the baby bar? Well, what's that? The baby bar is actually something that's done in California, where after your first year of either law school or sitting as an apprentice, because she's not going to law school, she's being, she's becoming a lawyer through apprenticeship. You take that exam Hmm. to see if you have the competency to continue on. And then you actually take a real bar exam, which she's not there yet. Um, So it's just like, basically a test you take after your first year first of law school or your first year. Okay. So apparently she's taken it a few times and this is her first time passing. So listen, like I said, listen, we need everything we can get in, in this work, in this yeah. battle, you know, to, to, to reform the criminal justice system. So I, I welcome her and her resources to the fold. <laughs> and the resources. Yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations, Kim. Right. And <laughs> we got to support our, our, our women. So um, huge congratulations from us. Um, and Sue Ann, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for this platform and all the amazing work that you do too. And for you all listening at home, thank you for tuning in to The Devil is a Lie, a production of the Alive Podcast Network, an entity of DC Media Connection. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media and on the AlivePodcastNetwork.com. We hope that you enjoyed today's show and remember there is greatness within you. And if anyone tells you any different, The devil is alive. Until next time, be blessed. The devil is alive.